Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, Seniors, it is almost over. Decisions are coming in probably quickly. Uh, Juniors, it's just getting started. Uh, And hopefully we're going to be talking about things that will be relevant to both of you today, as well as to anybody else who's listening, parents of students, uh, younger students. So we're going to we're going to cover the gamut because we're doing listener questions. So we have lots of good questions coming in relating to college finance and also to admissions. Um, And right now, actually, we're going to talk about something that I think is pretty intriguing and not necessarily something that many people think about when they think about applying to college. And this is the idea about the virtues of being either a big fish in a small pond or a small fish in a big pond. And uh, we'll tell you a little bit more about what we mean by that. But let me introduce first my colleague, uh, Kenan Dick, who is a former admissions officer at a number of schools, including Drexel and Swarthmore. Hi, Kenan. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, and thanks for joining today. And I do actually think it's interesting. You've worked in a number of different schools, and so uh, mm-hmm. have have maybe a, a more unique perspective than someone like me who just worked at one school. And so I think this is a particularly good background for our conversation today. But before we dig too deeply into that, what I want to set up for our listeners is this concept of big fish in a small pond versus small fish in a big pond. And what do we really mean when we talk about that? Are we talking about going to a big school versus a small school or something else? That's a good question. And I think we can define it in a, in a number of different ways. But the way that I, I usually define it primarily is based on talent level. So um, it's not necessarily that you're going to, you know, a school that has 1,000 students or a school that has 20,000 students, but you can also think about it in terms of a bell curve of the level of talent that's at that school academically. So for a student who who comes into a school setting and and takes some of those intro courses and a lot of what they're learning might be, or not a lot of what they're learning, but some of what they're learning is review versus a student who's taking that same course and feels like they have to catch up just to get to the starting point. Mm-hmm. So, um, so sometimes students who have taken really rigorous courses in high school might choose to go to a school where those intro courses are a little bit easier, where the level of, of talent around them in terms of their peer students um, is either similar or uh, students that might not be quite as advanced as they were in high school so that they have a relative edge in terms of getting ahead for their GPA freshman year, sophomore year, and and the like. So you can think of it in terms of that bell curve type of concept, but also you can think of it just in terms of the sheer numbers, right? Mm -hmm. When you're on a campus with 20,000 students and you're looking to get a specific internship, you might be competing with, you know, 200 other students to get that internship. Whereas if you're at a small school like where I was at at Swarthmore College, where there's only 1,500 students on campus, you might only be competing with two or three students for that internship. 
So right. sometimes uh, just the sheer number and level of competition at the schools can make a pretty big difference too. Right. Okay. So so we set the stage there. And what is interesting to me about the concept, if we think about it on the bell curve in terms of how talented the students are who are around you, what I always find interesting is that a lot, a lot of students and parents focus on that small fish in a big pond experience because when, and they may not realize that they're doing that, but when you primarily decide that you are most interested in your reach schools, um, which are Mm -hmm. schools that we would define as places where you are um, not quite as strong as the average accepted applicant. And, And we can kind of get the Ivies out of the mix because those are, you know, the sort of super selective, accepting less than 10% of the applicant pool. Uh, there it becomes right. less about, you know, how talented or not you are and just more about the sheer volume of really qualified applicants and the fact that they don't have any as many spots. But even when students are not shooting for that most selective level, I do find a tendency, and it seems to be that human nature thing of I don't want to belong to any club that will have me as a member, but to really always shoot for the more selective school and the more that it seems like it would be a big feat to get in, the more excited people are. But what that can lead to is this whole idea of being a small fish in a big pond. So let's talk a little bit Mm -hmm. about that first. And what do you see as the benefits of being a small fish in a big pond? Usually the the students who are eager for that type of experience uh, tend to be the students who are looking and are used to having their peers as resources for, for learning. And so I've had students who have approached this and said, I want to be able to learn from, you know, all the people that are around me, right? So if, you know, if I'm in a class or if I'm in a recitation with, you know, a group of 15 students, you know, I'm not going to be the one who's trying to explain it to everybody else. I want to be the one who can absorb the material from everybody else. And typically these are the kinds of kids who are pretty comfortable with the growth mindset where mm-hmm. uh, they're comfortable in being with a, in a position where I'm not to their level yet, but I'm going to get there. And these are the people that are going to help me get there. And so if they're comfortable in that kind of setting, then being a small fish in a big pond can be, you know, really good. Um, these kinds of kids tend to be the kids who are grinders, who work pretty hard for their grades. It's not something where their grades typically come really easily to them. Um, so they're, they're used to kind of putting in that effort and not necessarily already being you know, where, you know, at a place where they're going to get the accolades uh, from the very beginning. They're going to have to work for it and get there eventually. But right. those kids they, can, can get a lot out of that small fish, big pond idea. Right. And they're going to be fairly confident, right? You have to be confident to feel like it's fine. I'm going into this environment and there are likely going to be a lot of people who are more talented than I am. And not only do I not view that as a problem, I actually think that's going to be great. Um, but there is a certain mm-hmm. amount of confidence that you have to have for that. So if we flip that on its head, who are some students who you think might not be good in that small pond uh, or small fish, big pond setting? Right. Those are typically the kids who, um, two things, they usually are the kids who, are, it's important to their identity that they are the smart kid in the room, that they've been that way since probably, you know, elementary school or middle school, and um, and other students look up to them. 
when, you know, when it comes time to the test, you know, they get that A back and other people go, wow, you got an A, I got a C plus. How'd you do that? And it's part of that boosting of their confidence and as part of their identity. Mm-hmm. The problem with that student is sometimes that they can go to those, um, to those schools where everyone else is, is, you know, is equal or better in terms of their level of um, academic prowess. And then they find themselves in a position where they're, they're not that. They're not the smart kid in the room. And sometimes that can be a real knock to their identity. So we often talk about kids who see themselves as the freshman mistake. Like, how did I get in here? My, my roommate speaks six languages and I'm, you know, barely comfortable with English. Um, yeah. And, you know, so how, how did I get in? Um, or, home, oh, my God, they're already taking multivariable calculus and, and I'm just taking calculus for the first time. So how right. did they get that advanced in, in high school? And so sometimes that can be a real knock to their confidence. Um, and for many kids, that can be a real issue. Right. Can snowball a little bit, right? You you think you come from a place where maybe you are the best student that's come through your high school in many years and you've really accomplished a lot and you end up at a school where it feels like, even if that's not the reality, it feels like everyone around you has done far and away more than you have done. And that is, you know, like you say, that can be a real blow to the to their confidence. And so to me, this this speaks to this concept of um, of maybe going for that reach school is not always the best thing. It's not necessarily going to be the best thing for every student. And while it can be nice to get that blessing of getting in or get that, wow, they, you know, they really were impressed. I really, I really have done a lot that you might actually want to turn that offer down in favor of being the big fish in a small pond. And which leads us to the next question, which is really, what do you see as the benefits of that? Um, That sort of way of being, of being one of the better students on campus. For some reason, I think it's, it, or for some students, rather, I think it can be a matter of um, just taking some of the pressure off. A lot of these students have, have come from, you know, highly competitive high schools, and they feel like they just need to, um, to be in an environment where it's not as competitive to get the grades. One of my favorite examples of this was a student that I worked with, Ariel, and, and her take on it was that she was going to apply to all safety schools. And her feeling was that, you know, she's applying, her, her goals were to go to medical school, and she knew that she had to get a, a strong GPA in college in order to, to make that come true. Mm-hmm. So she wanted to be in a position where she was that big fish in the, in the smaller pond so that the likelihood of her being able to, uh, to, to still work hard but not crazy hard in order to get that uh, GPA that she needed was going to be a much greater reality. And if right. she went to you know, one of those <clears throat> reach schools for her, then she was going to be scrambling from the very beginning, and the competition level just might make it impossible to get where she needed to be. Right. And I think that is a really good point. Uh, there can be real value, especially for students with a goal of going on to a very selective grad program like medical school, of going somewhere where you're really going to shine compared to everyone else. Mm -hmm. Now you need to shine. You have to go and shine. You can't just go and 
be one of the pack, but you you would need to shine wherever you went. And the reality is that it might be a little bit easier to shine at one of those institutions. It might also be easier to get attention, right? You might mm-hmm. you might be able to connect more easily with your professor just by virtue of being a really strong student and showing interest and maybe showing up at office hours and um, uh, doing work that is impressive in comparison maybe to some of your peers. And, you know, maybe you might get recommended for something that no one else even knew about. Uh, A professor might ask you to do some work in a lab and you might get access to some opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have just because if you're at a place where everybody else is super talented, you know, everyone's going to be fighting over those and it's going to be much harder to, to the point that you're making. Exactly right. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Any and we we haven't we've primarily focused on that bell curve because I do think that's an angle that a lot of people don't think about as much. But um, so with that in mind, any other uh, students who you think might be really comfortable in the in the role of being the big fish and any other characteristics that we haven't already talked about that might make someone a good fit for that environment. Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the categories that uh, we're going to kind of make up this category a little bit, but the big fish in the big pond, um, where you might be a student who, um, one of my favorite students that I've ever worked with, um, went to Penn State for their honors program, actually transferred from Brown to the honors program at Penn State. And, you know, one of the things that he found really valuable about that transition was that now he was surrounded by students who were pretty similar in ability. Um, you know, within that honors program, but he had access to a lot of internships, research programs that were leading edge, right, because of the the large research nature of the university. Mm -hmm. So he had access to a lot of opportunities that he would not have had, um, or the level of research would not have been as advanced as the opportunities that he had at Brown. So I think that um, from his take, you know, being that big fish in the big pond, um, and uh, and taking advantage of some of the honors programs, and there are a lot of terrific honors programs that are available, especially in those big state schools. And you get some of the perks of you know priority housing um, uh, and priority choice of classes. So there's a number of things that can go along with that that can be really beneficial as well. But he also didn't have to uh, compete as much to be the the person who the faculty recognized. And I think mm-hmm. that there's a, a lot to what you just said in terms of if you're one of the star students and that, pro- that professor is putting together a research team for the summer, going to you and say, hey, I know this is something you're really interested in. Why don't you join my team? Those opportunities can be invaluable for jumpstarting a career or helping you build the resume that you need to get into the grad schools that you're looking for. Right. Right. Absolutely. I love that story. I remember that story about that student. It seems so unbelievable, I think, sometimes when you tell it, um, because people tend to think, well, why would you ever leave the Ivy or the school that everybody knows? And he had Mm -hmm. very good reasons for doing it. And obviously, Penn State's honors program is no slouch either. And that's not easy to get into. But the, the fact is that Thinking about who you will be in these school environments is so important and thinking about how you're going to handle it and react to it and 
what is really going to be important to you when you get there. Um, these are things I think we all wish that our students and families thought a little bit more about um, because it can really impact your experience when you get there. You think it's all great just getting in and now you've you've gotten through the hard part. But as I think we all know, the hard part is when you get there and creating a new life for yourself in the college and making sure you're in the right environment to do that for yourself. Kenan, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. All right, great. Well, uh, to our listeners, do not go away. We're going to be answering your questions when we come back. So you want to make come back and, and see if it made the show. We'll be back in just a minute. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited, as always, to do our uh, Q&A session. This is one of my favorite things that we do on the show because you guys ask questions and we answer them and we know what you want to know more about. Uh, If you were thinking, hey, I have questions, I'd like to send those in. Send them in to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Pause the podcast right now. Go. Send in your question. We'll wait. (laughs) 
and then uh, come back. We, we, we want to have more stuff to answer, not less. So I'm very excited to have Kathy Ruby here. She is my colleague here at College Coach and one of my favorite guests on the show. She also happened to uh, be in, do financial aid at a number of institutions, um, at a number of institutions. Did I just make that up, Kathy? I know you're formerly a yeah, very old. No, it is a number. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. Because I'm All old. of a sudden, I'm like... <laughs> I'm, 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 she's worked at a million places. Maybe actually you've just worked at St. Olaf. I didn't think so, but anyway. All right. It's spring. My, my brain is not fully intact right now because I just keep hoping that the weather is finally going to get nicer. (laughs) That it will be snowing, please. I know. I just need to probably leave New England and (laughs) to find nice weather. All right. We have a lot of questions I'm going to stop goofing around. Um, We usually start with financial aid question or a finance question. So why would we stop that now? And so first one's for you, Kathy. This comes from Jay. Jay says, let him say our aid is renewable each year as long as numbers don't change too much. I'm very much on board with Jay's question because my husband has the same, had the same question when his We got my stepson's packages like, well, what does that mean? So Mm -hmm. Jay says, this is very vague. Yes. How can you make a decision based on this if and maybe? My son is a second year. My daughter will be a freshman. Okay. Well, that's that's a great question. And first, I'm going to give Jay kudos for reading the terms of the award and finding the language that says, you know, this will be renewable as long as the numbers don't change. Because some people don't even read the terms. So that's good. (laughs) Um, And the other thing that's clear here is this is a need-based financial aid package. So just to distinguish, I mean, a student can receive scholarships and grants, especially from private institutions, and some of them might be based on merit, which means there's usually just a GPA requirement. It doesn't matter what how your finances look from year to year. Um, but then if it's a need-based grant or scholarship, that does mean you have to reapply every year. You have to fill out the FAFSA again, and you might have to do the CSS profile again. It just depends on the school. And the school will, will reevaluate your need every year. Um, <clears throat> so I think what this school is saying, and I, and I will say St. Olaf had similar language, and it, and it was hard. <laughs> it was hard to be specific. Um, so, what we would say is, if your finances stay similar from year to year, you should expect that this will be renewed. And so, I think you know, from a reasonable perspective, what that means is, if you don't have a big jump in income, you know, if you get a raise, if you get a cost of living increase, don't worry. Um, and if you don't win the lottery or suddenly report a significant, significantly larger number of assets. You should expect that each year the institutional grant portion would be renewed each year. Um, And the questions to ask are, well, what do you mean by renewed? Will you cover a portion of the tuition increase um, or does it just mean we get the same amount every year and then we have to cover the tuition increase every year. Um, so it's okay to ask the school what they mean, um, but a couple things, one, one thing does jump out uh, to me about Jay's situation, which is his son is a second year college student and his daughter is a freshman. Mm-hmm. So one question he should definitely ask of of the schools his daughter is considering is how will his package change when his son graduates from college? Um, right. Because the number of people in your household in college is a big indicator of how much aid you get. And so he should definitely ask that question. Um, how much will it change when his son graduates and then his daughter is the only one in the household in college, assuming he doesn't have younger kids? 
Right. So right. I guess the 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 <laughs> the summary is. If you're really worried, ask the college exactly what they mean, but mostly what they're meaning is if you don't have a big change in income and assets, don't worry too much about right. the grant changing. So, and, and I can say from our personal experience, yeah. we haven't had a huge change and the, uh, the package has not changed. So, Yeah, I, I, and, I and different schools will have different policies about how much of a tuition increase they might cover. It depends on whether the college meets the full need of all students. If they do, then they will reevaluate your need and the cost will go up, so they might increase your grant a bit to help cover the tuition increase. Got it. All right. All right, so I've got one for you. We have some, a lot of the admission questions have to do with, as you can imagine, during this decision time of year, um, decisions that might not have worked out as they hoped. So Julie is asking, my son is a high school senior and he didn't get into his first choice. He has several good options and has finally come to the point where he realizes he needs to stop comparing everything to his first choice and embrace the options that he has. Um, So she says, I realize he's probably going to love the school he commits to once he's there, and she hopes that's the case. Um, But if it comes up that he wants to give his first choice school another try and then apply as a transfer student, um, aside from grades, what does an admission officer look for on a student's application who applied as a high school senior and was denied and then applies again as a college transfer student? Um, Is meeting with the admissions office of the first choice school in person for guidance ever advisable? Um, Would he even have much of a chance getting in as a transfer student if he was already denied? Uh, So she just says, I'm sure it depends on the student, but your general feedback is appreciated. Okay. There's a lot there. Um, I would say that, yes, it depends on the student, but it also depends on the college. Mm -hmm. And it depends uh, just on so much (laughs) where he winds up going now. And um, so, for example, in the UC system, they reserve their transfer options primarily for students transferring in from community college. That is a uh, goal that they have in the University of California system. So if a student is enrolled in a four-year program, their take is that kid's all set. He's in a four-year program somewhere. We are, you know, we are focusing most of our time and attention on helping students who are going from a two-year program with the goal of completing at a four-year institution. So that would be one example where he probably mm-hmm. isn't going to have much of a shot, right? But then other schools have very different policies. There are, I think a lot of times I see students who don't maybe get into an Ivy wanting to try and transfer into that Ivy. There are some Ivies where they don't take any students. There are some where they might only take a handful of transfer students. And there are others with a not a robust transfer policy, but they certainly are taking more than a handful, but they're still not taking a lot. So Mm -hmm. without really knowing where he was denied and what his first choice was, it's kind of hard for me to offer too much guidance there. What I can say is that um, one important thing, one important thing that Julie already notes, which is that likely he's going to be really happy where he goes. And for any student who is disappointed by decisions and thinking, okay, well, I'm going to go to this school, but I'm going to try transferring in, uh, I would encourage you to... Have that feeling and then try and let it go and really embrace the school that you attend. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can share many, many examples of students who had that very plan and who ended up 
loving where they went and couldn't imagine their lives any differently, I will share one of my colleagues, our colleagues' stories without naming names, but um, she did not want to be at the school that she was at. Um, She had every intention of trying to transfer to the school that she didn't get into. uh, And one of her very close friends sort of was pretty excited about being at that same school and sort of talked her out of it. And and they became pretty close. And actually, she ended (laughs) up marrying him. And, you know, I, I could say I think she's pretty happy in her life. So... You know, these are, you want to try to embrace where you're going because there is a reason that that school was on your, on your list in the first place. And while it can be hard to let go of that first choice, having the school, uh, you like the school enough to apply, right? So that's number one. Um, Let's say you go and you just can't get, let go of this idea that you really feel like that other school would be a better place for you to be for many different reasons. And you want to submit a transfer application. You could, the the school might allow you to meet with an admissions officer to talk through that. I don't think there's any harm in asking. I would say they may or may not agree to it, but you're not going to hurt your chances by asking unless you approach that meeting as more of a, I can't believe you didn't admit me than a, (laughs) I'm really, I, I, you know, where I am is fine, but I really feel like this is the place for me for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I wanted to see, you know, if there was any insight that you could share. Um, about, you know, what I could perhaps do differently or what you would like to see more of. So it should be less about what didn't I do right and more Mm -hmm. about what can I be doing. Um, But I would say that that's not necessarily going to happen. So you may not be able to sit down and talk to someone about that in that way. Um, So my last piece of advice is to make sure that you are submitting a brand new application. Uh, Mm -hmm. So at Penn, When a student who had been denied previously applied to be a transfer, the old file was right there with the new file. And so I could flip through the previous application that the student had submitted, and I could see whether or not they had done anything differently. And Mm -hmm. there were some students who literally submitted the same application. And (laughs) if that application didn't get you in the first time, it's not likely to have a different effect this time. So you want to do new essays. Basically, it should be a relatively new application. Um, the last piece of advice that I would give is that if you are planning to transfer, which two pieces actually, you want to make sure that you get very involved in your current college. Not just because you might actually love it if you get very involved, but also because you can't imagine that or you if the college wasn't going to admit you based on what you accomplished so far in high school mm-hmm. you can't imagine that just relying on those activities and and having a very similar profile is necessarily going to do the trick this time around so you want to continue the involvement that you began in high school into college you want to become part of the fabric of that community because that's what's going to be more and more appealing to this college that turned you down the first time because they're going to see that, hey, not only did this student do these things in high school, but now they are doing either those same things or they've gotten involved in new things when they've gotten to college. And you want to make sure that you know your professors because they're going to have to write you letters of recommendation. You can't go back and rely on high school letters of recommendation now. And Mm -hmm. so that leads to my second piece of advice, which is the further away you get from high school, 
the less important what you did in high school becomes and the more important what you've done in high college becomes. So maybe your test scores weren't quite up to par or maybe you just you were a late bloomer and your grades were sort of just coming into their own or you really weren't someone to get super involved, but in college you've approached things differently. Um, the further away you are from high school, the more all the stuff you've accomplished in college, the more important that will become. And that can be really beneficial if the school turned you down the first time around. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So long question, long answer. Uh, We have another question from Jay, and Jay is asking, is financial aid based on EFC or is it a recruiting tool? Uh, Another good question from Jay. Um, And the answer is, of course, it depends. But um, so let's first define what he's talking about. So he says, is financial aid based on EFC? So he means expected family contribution. So he's saying, is financial aid... uh, really just based on your financial need, or is it also used as a recruiting tool? And the answer is it depends on the institution and how they use their need-based financial aid. But it's not unusual at all, especially among schools that aren't able to meet full need for everyone, um, to use need-based financial aid as a recruiting tool. And so what they're doing is using something called preferential packaging. And so they establish your financial need, and then they look look at you and say, okay, who is this student? Is this someone in the top quintile of our applicant pool or the top quartile, or is it somebody at the bottom of the applicant pool or in the middle? And how much money do we have to spend and who do we think we can enroll um, using our merit scholarships and our need-based financial aid program? And and trust me, they're doing complicated analyses to figure that out. But if you're somebody who's in the top quartile of of a college's applicant pool, um, and again, these are the colleges that don't meet need for everyone, um, you're much more likely to have a better proportion of your need met because you're somebody who they want to enroll. Um, so, so it's a combination at many schools. Now, the schools that meet full need for everyone, they probably are less likely to practice that preferential packaging. They're probably just going to meet everybody's need um, as it comes through based on their policies about how they meet need. Um, and they'll treat everyone pretty similarly. So it just depends on the institution. But definitely, um, just like receiving merit aid, you're a, you have a better chance of uh, getting a merit scholarship if you're in the top quartile of a college's applicant pool. Just like that, um, you have a better chance of getting a generous need-based financial aid package if you have financial need um, if you're in the top quartile of a school's applicant pool. Got it. And per our earlier segment on being a big fish in a small pond, uh-huh. look at this. It's even also beneficial from a finance point of view. So, yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, all right. We have room. We have time, I think, for one more question for me before we go to break. Okay. So this one is actually a pretty quick one. Um, how can I get an internship? Because colleges prefer internships to other extracurricular activities, right? So I know we need one. And that was from uh, Lorraine. My favorite, favorite um, type of question where uh, there's there's a good question here around how do you get internships, and there's also embedded in this a myth, the myth being that colleges prefer internships to other extracurriculars. Totally not true. 
colleges really do not have a preference on what you guys are doing outside of the classroom. I could say it till I'm blue in the face, but it continues <laughs> to propagate as a myth. What they want is for students to have things that they're interested in and to pursue those interests. And an internship, an internship, excuse me, is one way to pursue those interests. And it can be something really valuable for a student. And then there are internships that can be really lame, you know, where you're making coffee and putting, <laughs> you know, filing papers or doing data entry. <laughs> so, you know, uh, the fact is that I wouldn't say an internship is any more or less appealing. It's really about what you're doing and what you're interested in. But how do you get an internship? Well, I think there are a lot of different ways to go about getting an internship. It's not so different from going about getting a job. You have to start early, typically, though, for internships, maybe earlier than with getting a job. Um, Maybe not. Depends on the kind of job you want. Um, And you want to rely. It's all about networking, or it can be all about networking. So, If you have a particular industry that you'd like to get an internship is, and I would suggest that you start there, you can't just say, hey, I want an internship because the next (laughs) question is, well, in what? And what do you want to do? Um, So figure out what the industry is. Then ask yourself, who do I know in this industry? Do I know anyone? Do my parents know anyone? Do my parents' friends know anyone? Do my teachers know anyone in this industry? Does my guidance counselor know anyone in this industry? So start talking to people about your interest in the industry that you are interested in. I would also go and do some research yourself. So if you know what the industry is, go look at some of the major players. Some of them may actually have formal internship programs that you can apply directly to without needing to know anybody. So you want to go looking for that. Um, You, if you do know people and people put you in touch with that person, uh, you know, ask to see if you can just have a 15 minute conversation with them. Let them know about your interest in their industry and your desire of for an internship, but would it be possible? And maybe have something in mind in case this, the, the organization doesn't have anything formal. You might say, I thought maybe I could just come for a week and, and job shadow you. Or I noticed that you have this big project coming on uh, or going on. I think it sounds really interesting. Perhaps I could come in and support that project in some way. Um, I If you have a skill set that you think would be valuable, make the connection for them. Uh, so you have to do a lot of research in order to have a conversation at that level. Um, but that is something that you, you know, you can do. I've seen students do it. I worked with a student uh, a few years ago who got himself an internship at a venture capital firm that didn't really take interns. And they certainly <clears throat> weren't looking at high school students, but he had an idea. He went to um, some of the principal players. I do believe someone in his family knew someone there, but that was all they could do is make the introduction. He mm-hmm. made the case for what he wanted to do and how he thought he could be valuable to them, uh, understanding that he was a high school student, so there was a limit right. how valuable he could be to them, right? And they said, all right. And they, they took a chance on him and gave him the internship. Uh, the other uh, avenue is that there are companies out there that will find internships for you. They tend to be very expensive, so it's not necessarily the best solution, especially if you know the goal was maybe to in- earn some money as a paid <laughs> intern and not to spend money in order to get a free internship. Uh, but if if you have the resources, and really for you it's more about uh, you've waited a while, your searching has kind of not turned up anything, and this company specializes in finding internships in a particular industry, uh, then you know that can be a fallback plan. But I would say that 
most of the students that I know who've gotten internships have done that through networking, through all the different people that they know. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, that would be my, my best advice. All right. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to get back to questions. And we have more finance questions. So we'll start with one of those. Uh, but don't go away because we're back with more answers. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back, everybody. We uh, are going to jump right back into your questions. And, Kathy, I have one for you. And this comes to us from Steve, who asks... Uh, or says, my daughter has heard from a few of her schools who have admitted her and offered her scholarship money. She's got a couple other schools she's waiting to hear from. Can I go back and ask for more? Uh-huh. Of course he can, but I would wait. Um, so what, what he's asking about, of course, is the idea of going back to ask her first choice or whichever school she's interested in attending um, for more scholarship money. And certainly he can do that, but it's probably a good idea to have the whole picture before he does that, because part of how you can go back and ask for more, especially among, especially private colleges, but some public universities who are competing with each other, is if you have a better offer from one school, sometimes you can leverage it to get more money from another school. So it's a good idea to have the whole picture um, to know what you're looking at um, before you make that decision um, and before you put together 
that request. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't start putting together the request and start strategizing based on what you think is going to happen with the other schools, um, but I would, I would probably wait. And there is plenty of time. Um, so students have until May 1st to decide where they're going to enroll. Um, <clears throat> and so at this stage, I mean, we're only in mid-March. You'll probably hear from the other schools in the next couple weeks, and so you do have the month of April to, to go back. Um, and it's just better to have the full picture because you might have a stronger case um, once you have the whole picture. Right. That makes perfect sense to me. And to your point, there's still lots of time. Yes. Um, all right. You have a good all one right. for me. I've got one for you. Okay. So this is another one about uh, those first choice schools. So my daughter was deferred from her first choice early decision school. It was a reach for sure. And two early action schools that, that we considered were backups. Okay. I heard your recent podcast about early action deferrals and know now that those deferrals make sense. But my question is, what happens to those deferred applications during the regular decision process? I've heard from a morning television news show that deferred applications are usually never revisited. And a recent Q&A session on one of your podcasts made it sound like deferred applications are usually revisited last. Um, So we assume she'd be at the top of the regular decision pile because she's a strong candidate and she proclaimed her interest early. So any information on how schools generally handle deferred applications would be greatly appreciated. Hmm. All right. There's a lot to unpack in this one as well. Let me go right to the, the, the I heard from a morning television news show that deferred <laughs> applications are usually never revisited. I don't even really know what to do with that. Um, I don't know what they said. I don't know who they were talking to. Uh, I, all I can say is any kind of blanket statement is should immediately have your ears ringing and thinking, wait a second, a blanket statement is usually not true because you can't make blanket statements when it Mm -hmm. comes to college admissions, (laughs) right? Here's the thing. It depends. (laughs) I can tell you this. If the the application is revisited because they have to make a decision on it, right? Mm -hmm. Deferred means you are deferring making the decision. Now, it is true that at some schools, revisiting the application could be as simple as um, there are certainly state schools are, are the, the primary people where this is going to happen, where the volume is extreme and it's primarily based on numbers. Again, mm-hmm. I'm not talking about all state schools. I am talking about some state schools. Um, and so uh, sometimes what they do with deferred applications is they're deferred because they don't really know how it's going to shake out. What is their average SAT going to be that year or their average ACT? What is the cutoff going to be um, for maybe a GPA or those test scores? And so they need to get the full applicant pool in before they get that full picture. And so by the time they are looking at these deferred applications, they have all the applicants in at that point. They know what those cutoffs are going to be. And it could be as simple as, oh, good, they're above the cutoff, change that deferral to an admit, or nope, they didn't make the cutoff, turn that admit to that deferral to a deny. Mm-hmm. Um, the more selective you get, absolutely, those applications are going to be revisited. I think the most important thing for any student who has been deferred is um, there is usually a way to let the school know that you are still interested. It could be something as simple as, you know, you check a box in a, in a 
online, um, the more selective you get, so long as the school doesn't tell you not to do something, uh, the more important it is that you follow up with something, whether that's a letter or Stanford comes to mind. Stanford has three questions that they ask students to answer online and submit. Um, That's how you let them know. And if you're deferred and you opt not to do that, then their assumption is, well, I guess you're not that interested anymore. And (coughs) they may turn their attention to other applicants. Um, so it's important to let the school know that you're still interested. Uh, there, As there are no blanket statements, you could never say that schools never revisit the deferred applications. I just, I don't even, I, again, that just <laughs> bothers me so much because <laughs> it's just not true. Um, but, you know, I could never say that deferred applications are revisited last. If that's what you heard, I'm not sure that's exactly what we meant in that Q&A. It could be that, you know, different schools are going to do it differently. I know that I will fall back on my personal experience at Penn. The deferred applicants were mixed in with the regular applicants. And so we didn't didn't review them first, middle or last. We reviewed Mm -hmm. them um, when we were reviewing the regular applicant pool, what might what you might be confusing is you're not rereading the entire application for a deferred applicant. What you're doing is you are reviewing the application. You're looking at anything new that has coming in, come in. You're now you've now got that full context of the applicant pool, and so now you can say, well, I wasn't ready to make a decision before, but now I am, and now that decision is like I mm-hmm. said, admit. There are even some schools, our dean felt very strongly when I was at Penn that if you deferred a student, that the only thing you could do in regular decision with that deferred applicant was admit or deny, that a wait list was not a possibility because it just Mm -hmm. felt like, how do you string them? You keep stringing them along. Oh, we're not ready to make a decision then. Oh, well, we're going to give you a chance, but we're still not really making a decision. So that was the only thing we could do. I, but I do know of other schools because I see it happen where they defer a kid and then waitlist the kid. Um, <laughs> so you can't even say for sure what is going to happen with those deferred applicants. What I can tell you is that the the deferred applications, because they're not being reread in total, you're not reading it for the first time, you are focusing on the regular decision applications because you need to read them for the first mm-hmm. time. But you're still going to review the deferred applications and they come to committee, if it's a school that does committee, at least at Penn, they came to committee all mixed together. Um, But again, I can't really make a blanket statement. The one blanket statement I can make is that it is patently false to say that deferred applications are never reviewed. (laughs) That is definitely not true. (laughs) Maybe there are some schools, but again, they have to review them because they have to make a decision. It may not be a long review, but they are definitely taking a look at that application again. What I do want to highlight is it doesn't really matter if you're looking at them first or last. It is absolutely noted that the student was in that early pool and that Mm -hmm. there was at least enough interest and the student was on top of things enough to get that application in in the early round. So, you know, it's it's helpful, but I once the deferred decision has been made, then that student is essentially a regular decision applicant. And so it doesn't really give you much of a boost to have been in that early pool if you get deferred. And even there, I can't really say that as a blanket statement because 
um, you know, I can think of times where I was in committee where, I, you know, I might be pushing for a student and the committee chair was sort of like hemming and hawing. And I might say, well, you know what? This kid wanted us in early I think that she's looking still strong and regular, and I'm really going to advocate for that student. And so I might use the fact that the student applied early Mm -hmm. as a positive. But um, there are no blanket statements you can make about early. And uh, I've just talked for a really long time, and I think I've answered Nicole's (laughs) question. I think you did. I think you did. And hopefully... Hopefully, I've made some important points there about blanket statements, and when you hear them, your your alarm bells should go off. All right, Lori. Lori is asking, how do I retrieve my FSA ID? Oh, a technical question. So the FSA ID, so it stands for Federal Student Aid ID, um, <clears throat> is the username and password that individuals use to sign the FAFSA and to um, and to sign federal student loan promissory notes, um, and, and, and well, that's what those are used for, and to sign into the government systems, essentially. And so the problem with the FSA ID is we, so a parent needs the FSA ID to sign the FAFSA, and then the student needs an FSA ID to complete and sign the FAFSA. So each of each person will have their own FSA ID, and that username and password is unique to your name and social security number and birth date and whatever email address you have uh, tied the FSA ID to. Um, so the problem with that, that FSA ID is you use it about once a year, um, sometimes a little bit more, but usually about once a year. So I know that when my daughter was in college, the search, every year the search began for where did I, where did I safely file the FSA ID? Because um, there's just no way you can commit it to memory like you might with other passwords because you just don't use it enough. So you can go to the create or to the FSA ID website if you've lost yours, misplaced it. But I do advise you, you know, put it with your taxes, put it with something, you know, the important documents so that you know where it is all the time. But um, if you've lost it, you can go to fsaid.ed.gov and there's a tab that says manage my FSA ID. And so you can retrieve your username or your password or whatever you need to. Um, just a hint, if you've connected your FSA ID to an email address, I, I'm pretty sure, if I'm remembering correctly, the username is usually your email address. Um, so that might give you a little hint. Um, and then the, and so then it just takes you through, and they're going to ask you the answers to all of those security questions that they had you set up, and there are quite a few, if I recall. Um, and then they'll help you retrieve it. If you do run into a problem <clears throat> and you need to call the federal government, there's a phone number you can call. But remember that you as a parent can't call on behalf of your student. So it is your student's FSA ID. So if, it's your, if your student is missing their FSA ID, they have to call to get it resolved. If you can't get it resolved through the website, you can't call for them. So, um, so yeah, good luck. And the government is there. There is a toll-free number that you or your student can call if you need help if the website doesn't work. Got it. Kathy, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, And we're getting close to our time. So I'm just really quickly, someone had asked a question about how much grades matter for a senior. Mid-year grades. grades. Yep. Yeah, second semester grades or second semester grades. And uh, I didn't mention grades when we were talking about the deferrals previously, but that's something that they're going to be looking at. So they absolutely matter. They matter whether you are applying in the regular decision round or whether you've been deferred or if you've been admitted 
Um, I actually was just on a Facebook counselor group the other day, and a counselor was looking for school suggestions for a student who was admitted early decision, who was tanking in her classes, and the decision, the the acceptance had been revoked. Oh. It does happen. I don't really want to add more stress to people's lives, but seniors, it's almost over, but it is not over until the year ends, and you need to maintain your performance because you do not want to be in the shoes that that student is in right now, for sure. Um, so thanks to Kathy again. Uh, thanks to Kenan, who joined me earlier. Next week, Sally's here. She is going to be giving you guys some insight into NACAC's State of College Admissions Reports. comes out every year, and there's some good information in that. Um, we're going to be talking about what to do if you're waitlisted in office hours And unfortunately, this may be something on top of mind for some of you come next week. Um, We're also going to be talking about how much is too much to borrow. Now is the time where I think people get tempted to take out too many loans. And uh, because a student got into their top choice school and the package that came with it wasn't perhaps what was (laughs) hoped for. And you start to think differently about what you can afford. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about how much is too much and how you need to kind of stick to your guns. Um, If you have questions, send them to us, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We have a great blog. Please visit it, blog.getintocollege.com. We're on Pinterest. We're on LinkedIn. Um, You can download the show for free from iTunes. And uh, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.